Welcome to our study of the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We are actually in our last verses of the last chapter, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 20 through 23. And then it's a possibility that we will have one more session just to kind of do a wrap-up. And my idea would be to look at those things which are specifically how asking how can we apply these truths to our lives in uh, everyday living. So um, I'm not certain about that yet, but uh, those of you that are online, if you want to know for sure, just go to TorahResource.com, click on Resources, and then on the Philippian study, and we would have a notice there. And we probably will put a notice on the front page. So we'll see. I, I'm not the webmaster, so we'll see how to do that. But that's where I would make notice, and I would do that probably by Wednesday or Thursday. And then uh, whether we're going to have it, and I will also say if we're not having it. Um, so, And then we'll take a couple of weeks off, two or three weeks off probably, as I prepare for what we're doing next, and I don't know what that will be at this time. So, But thank you for coming. Thank you for being part of this study, and let's begin with prayer. Father, again, we are grateful to you for your word. We are so, so uh, grateful, so happy that you have retained and maintained your word for us because clearly, without your word, we would not know you in truth. And so, Father, we thank you and we know that you've done this because you have promised that in every generation you would draw those to yourself whom you have chosen. You would do so through the gospel of your word and through the work of your spirit. And, Lord, we bless you for that and we thank you. We are so privileged to have a life where we're able to walk with you in this world and to seek by your grace and by your strength to put into practice those very things which you have taught us as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Yeshua and have been brought into your family. Father, we are very, very thankful. And we thank you for this epistle. We thank you for the lessons that we have uh, learned and gone over and the truths that uh, Paul has once again established and reiterated uh, truths that are eternal and mean so much to us. And we bless you for this, Lord, and we thank you for our study in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go to Philippians 4, and as is our custom, we're going to read it uh, in its entirety. And I'm reading again out of the Christian Standard Bible, which used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I tried to go around from different uh, versions just because I know that people use different ones and so kind of give an opportunity to see how they word the, the various passages that we're reading. Here is Philippians 4. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Udia and Suntke, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Messiah Yeshua. Now to our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Messiah Yeshua. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah be with your spirit. So we come to the final four verses of this epistle, uh, verses 20, 21, 22, and 23. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul comes to the conclusion of his letter to the Philippian community, he breaks into a doxology. What is a doxology? Well, it's based upon the Greek word doxa, which means to give praise. So this is what he he says. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. And then he ends, Amen. His instructions and teachings in the former context now turns to the imperative of worship as he comes to the final sentences of this great epistle. And this is a pattern marked throughout the scriptures, that God's magnificent power, his love and righteousness, form the very impetus for his children to praise him in all aspects of their lives. Now, let me just stop and say, that means we can praise him in all aspects of life, right? What does that mean? When things are hard, we praise him because we know he is able to help us. When we are struggling, we praise him because we know that he understands and he has promised to help us. So in every situation, whether it's uh, something that we're just uh, showered with blessings and we praise him, or when we're in very difficult and hard times, we still praise him because we believe he is the God who controls all things and that he has promised to never leave us, never forsake us, but to aid us to continue forward in strong faith. 
Paul goes on to say, what is more, whereas in the previous verse, Paul writes of God as my God, he now emphasizes the unity of all believers by writing our God. For all who are truly in Yeshua have a living, personal, and eternal relationship with the God of the universe. This is such a wonderful thing that he does when he says our God, when previously he said my God will supply all of your needs. But now he says our God. What does that mean? We're all on the equal level of acceptance to God. Those who are teachers don't have greater acceptance as those who are not. Those who have been believers for a long period of time and those who are new believers have the same access to God through Yeshua. And they have the same standing in Yeshua. So even though there are differences in terms of gifting, in terms of station of life, in terms of ministries and so forth, all of us, in God's eyes, are equal because we are in his Son. Indeed, in the previous verse, he emphasizes that all of God's riches, which he has poured out upon his children, are the result of the work of Yeshua in securing eternal redemption for all who are his. It is this great and marvelous reality that brings Paul to pen these words of worship. For as children of God, by his saving grace, our lives ought to be characterized by constantly giving glory to the one who has saved us from the debt and penalty of sin and has adopted us into his family as his own children. I think very often people, in just in the way that they consider who God is, and his greatness, and his grandeur. You think, he's so far away from me? I'm so below him? Okay, in one sense, that's absolutely true. But there's another side to this. He has adopted us into his family as his very own children. Those of us who have had the privilege of adopting children know that while at first it may seem impossible... As the Lord gives strength, you're able to love those children as though they were your own. He's done that for us. He loves us. He paid the price for us. And as Paul writes to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Yeshua Messiah to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I know that because this is not a physical now, not a physical relationship, we're actually able to see Yeshua and touch him and be with him in a, in a physical sense, that sometimes we say, really, I'm accepted as one of his children? The scriptures say yes. And the enemy would like us to either forget that or not to dwell on it, and he definitely would like us not to live it out. We're children of the Lord. He has accepted us and he has promised that he would never forsake us if we are truly his. Yeshua said, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never cast out. Our security is based upon God's sovereignty, His truthfulness, and His power.
Indeed, giving praise to God is to affirm and to live in a way that honors Him and gives Him first place in our lives. It is as His redeemed children more and more live in a way that affirms His glory that we prove ourselves to be His children indeed. Are there those who believe that they are somehow accepted by God and in fact aren't? Are there those who are deceived? The scriptures tell us this. That what is the proof? The proof is fruit. When a tree is planted, and it's an apple tree, let's say, when it brings forth apples, everyone knows that it's an apple tree. This is why Yeshua said, By their fruit you will know them. By their fruit you will know them. In other words, our the way we live, the, our life, it isn't because we're perfect. It's not because we never sin. Of course not. But when we do sin, when we do that which is wrong, the Spirit urges us to confess our sins, to make things right, and to seek God's forgiveness. And that in itself is an ongoing proof that we are His. It is interesting that Paul begins this final section of the epistle in verse 10 of our chapter uh, by stating that he rejoiced in the Lord greatly for the kindness the Philippian community has shown to him. And by these words, he emphasizes the admonition he has given twice in this epistle, that is, to rejoice in the Lord and to do so always, right? In our chapter, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It is when we strive to fill our lives with true rejoicing in the Lord, even when trials come our way, that we are unable to give glory to God, knowing that He is in control and that He has promised us eternal life with Him. Now, what does it mean to rejoice? It means to seek that satisfaction. When we, maybe there's some food that we like or something that we really like to eat, or maybe there's something we really like to do, and when uh, we're done doing the hard things, we go and, and, and we, when we eat and we eat something that we like, we say, oh, that's good. That's rejoicing, right, in a, in a temporal way. Well, we're to rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because he's a supplier of all things. He's mighty. He's great. He's all-powerful, omnipotent, all-loving, all-righteous. And he has brought us into his family. He has accepted us in the beloved one, Yeshua. And he loves us and cares for us. You know, there is a true sense that all of mankind longs to have their lives filled with that which brings them happiness and joy. Right? I mean, just stop and think about it. What drives people to do the things that they do? Some people think they're going to get satisfaction out of drugs, or they're going to get satisfaction out of... Uh, hobbies, or they're going to, and of course they they do at least in a limited sense. But why is everybody driven to find something that makes them feel good? Well, I think it is because God has put eternity in man's mind and filled the human heart with longing. He tells us that He created mankind with a sense that there is an eternity. There is some place, something, that is without the troubles and without the sorrows and so forth that we have sometimes in this world. And it is true that fallen mankind seeks to fill this longing with all manner of things other than seeking God in order to live in a way that honors and gives praise to Him. 
Consider how much energy, time, and money is expended by the world to find that which satisfies and fills the void of the soul. And oftentimes these things that, that the world seeks after are, you know, the enemy lets them feel, well, this is really good. I don't need anything else. Don't come and talk to me about a God you worship. I got everything I need. You know, I'm wealthy. I've got this. I've got that. I can do this. Everything's fine. Well, John Piper puts it this way. The world has an inconsolable longing. It tries to satisfy the longing with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning exploits, sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, ascetic rigors, managerial excellence, in other words, your job and so forth, but the longing remains. They're never fully satisfied. This is why things that kind of put you out, you know, overuse of, of alcohol, of drugs, of other kinds of things that helps you forget the pain for a while. Well, this is what drives those who are not finding their their full acceptance and their joy in the Lord. This is why Paul tells us rejoice at all times. Remember, God is in control. And praise him for that. Even when things are going in a way that seems contrary to, to what is good for you and so forth. It is clear that God created mankind in his image. And thus there remains in all humans a longing for that which is eternal. C.S. Lewis put it this way, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So this is why I emphasize what he has said in this fourth chapter. He said it in verse 4. He's saying it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Let our relationship in the Lord fulfill our deepest desires, knowing that we are His and He is ours. He's our Lord and our Savior, and we can gain great strength through that. He says to the Lord, Be glory forever and ever. Thus, as Paul comes to the end of his letter, he demonstrates his own joy and fulfillment in the Lord by concluding with the ultimate goal of his instruction and teaching to the Philippian community, that is, that all should be done to the glory of God who does not change and will eternally be the one who deserves our highest praise. Once again, the foundational benchmark of the Reformers, that is, soli deo gloria, all for the glory of God, is a doctrine clearly founded upon the Scriptures themselves, from the very beginning of the Bible until the very end. I think this is a big part of what the Scriptures teach us about being created in His image. We have a sense, just in our human nature, because we're created in his image, that there is something better. There's something worth working for in terms of that which overcomes the uh, downness of our world when we uh, experience it. And then he ends, of course, this uh, first verse with Amen. The Greek Amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew Amen and appears to be related to Emunah, which carries the sense of steadfastness trustworthiness or faithfulness. The point is that the word itself became an expression of confidence that God would complete what he had promised to do. 
Thus, when Paul adds forever and an ever as the finale to his doxology, he is stating that, indeed, God will bring about all of his holy will, and thus points the Philippian believers and us to find the ultimate purpose in life to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. This is one of the the great things that came about by the Protestant Reformation. In the Protestant Reformation, the goal was to help people see there's no such thing as sacred and non-sacred in terms of our lives. You know, you, you don't... You say, well, you can't... Can you really uh, play basketball to God's glory? Yes. The reformer said, yes. How you handle yourself in difficult situations. How you react to very difficult situations. When I'm at work, do I work to the glory of God? You say, well, Tim, you don't know what I do. I clean out sewers. Okay, can you clean out sewers to the glory of God? Can you do the work well? Can you rejoice in Him for what He's given you in that work? Can you see that you are helping others and rejoice that God's given you that ability? There's no secular part of life, as is oftentimes said, well, this is secular and this is sacred. No. In the whole scope of what God has taught us, everything we have has a sacred dimension. Our relationships with one another, what we do when no one's around, how we entertain ourselves, how we find joy in this, that, and the other, all of that must be seen as unto the Lord. Can I work as unto the Lord? Yes. Can I recreate as unto the Lord? Yes, I must. Can I rest as unto the Lord? Yes. Can I eat as unto the Lord? All of it. Life as a whole is to be done in the context of I am in his presence and he is my Lord and God and I am his child. How are we to strive for the same fervent faith that Paul expresses here in these final verses of his epistle? Remember that Paul was in prison when he wrote this epistle, and this should cause us to ask ourselves, would we be able to rejoice in the Lord even in such a dark and troublesome place? Of course, we know that the correct answer would be yes, but how are we being built up in our faith and being strengthened to glorify God in our lives? Let me use an illustration. Someone whose highest goal in their life is to be a well-known athlete in whatever area he wants to do athletics. If he really longs for that, what is he going to do? He's going to train for it. It's going to affect his diet. It's going to affect how he sleeps. It's going to affect everything that he does with the goal of reaching that desired state that he wants. Well, How are we doing when we put our understanding as my goal is to be like Yeshua? We can't just expect that we're going to be immersed in it as without any of our uh, effort. No. So how are we being built up in our faith and being strengthened to glorify God in our lives? Clearly we must make the word of God, the scriptures, to be that which we are regularly, day by day, learning and meditating upon so that we know the truth God has revealed 
and commit ourselves to live out those eternal truths. The more that we hide the Word of God in our hearts, the more we can meditate upon it, the more the Word of God, by the Spirit, will help us grow to become more and more what God intends. Moreover, the Scriptures are clear that the fellowship of believers together is also a necessary means that God has given us in order to grow strong in our faith as we care for each other and encourage one another through a genuine love which the Spirit enables. You know, there are two sides of community. There's sometimes just a great joy of being together and things work out well, but there is the other side, and that is there are some people that are going to rub us the wrong way. Well, God uses that too. He teaches us how to love when it's difficult, which makes our ability to love even stronger. He gives us wisdom, and we commit ourselves. And there's something else he gives us, an an ability to be more introspective. Do I come across this way to others, the way that person's coming across to me? It helps us to become more and more what Yeshua intends us to be. So, and it is with this important truth that Paul turns his attentions as he brings these inspired words to a grand finale. He says in the next verse, Greet every saint in Messiah Yeshua. The brethren who are with me greet you. Paul uses an imperative in the word greet, aspasaste, um, to, in order to emphasize how important it is that all of those who comprise the Philippian community are given the message of his words as they are read to them. In other words, okay, let me make sure everybody understands what's an imperative. It's a command. Greet one another. Greet every saint in the Messiah Yeshua. Well, in any community, there might be some that you say, I'd rather not. Well, that's not what he says. We all have a commonality if, indeed, we are born again. And therefore, we should learn to help one another, even if there are grave differences between us. For surely the epistle would first be given to the elders of the community, and it would have been their glad duty to make sure all who were part of the Philippian congregation received the message he has sent. Remember, in Paul's day, he probably had a difficult time getting writing materials. I'm sure it was brought to him by those who were helping him. But once he wrote this epistle, there was one copy. It didn't get passed around to everybody. It may have been read out loud. And what about people that didn't make that time? Well, then it'd have to be read again and so forth and so on. So when he says, greet every saint in Messiah Yeshua, he's saying this is a corporate thing that he wants done with the message that he has sent. Moreover, when he writes that every saint in Messiah Yeshua is to receive a greeting as coming directly from him, it shows the ultimate equality of all who are in Messiah Yeshua. Surely, there are different responsibilities assigned to the various members of the community, but Paul's emphasis is that all who are in Messiah, whether Jew or non-Jew, are to be seen as equally members of the body of Messiah and therefore are of equal importance in regard to the eternal gift of God's grace in Yeshua. I know it's always the human tendency to put some people, you know, higher on a pedestal than others. You know, they're doing this great, wonderful thing and these others are just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Uh, whatever. 
But in God's eyes, everyone for whom Yeshua died is of equal importance because an eternal price was paid for them. Now granted, he gives uh, some giftings that he doesn't give to others and so forth and so on, but everyone within the body has an important role to fulfill. And in God's eyes, we all are his children whom he loves with an eternal love. Can we look at each other that way? That could help us in our communities. Unfortunately, as the Christian church became more and more diverse in the later centuries, the term saints, which is in the Greek word hogios, became something the apostles never intended. For instance, throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church, sainthood was something attained by one's completing or accomplishing various religious duties in that church. Now I know there are some who are trying to say the current Pope is trying to kind of undo that a bit, but, you know, for millennia, uh, thousands of years, the uh, Catholic Church has basically said that there are saints and they put saints at different levels and there are higher saints and lesser saints and you pray to the saints and so forth and so on. This, of course, is entirely contrary to how the word is used throughout the apostolic scriptures. For the word itself means one who is set apart or dedicated to serve the Lord or that which is fully dedicated to the Lord. That's what the Greek text means. Isn't everyone who is born again to be fully dedicated to the Lord? Yes. That is the proof that we are more and more dedicated to him that we truly are his. If someone raises their hands or goes forward or does something, says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian just because I live in America or whatever, if their lives don't show that, then there's plenty of doubt that they truly are a believer. Therefore, all of us are saints in terms of being purchased by God, our sins being forgiven, and he uh, declaring us to be righteous. Therefore, saint defines anyone who is truly a believer in Yeshua. For the ultimate proof of being born again is a life that becomes more and more characterized by obedience to God in all aspects of life. Then Paul says, The brethren who are with me greet you. By writing of the brethren, Paul most likely is referring to those who are regularly visiting him and helping him in whatever ways they were able. We know that Timothy was among these, for Paul mentions him in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 20, and 22. Likewise, there were also others about whom Paul gives a good report, and these most likely were also visiting Paul when, when able and bringing him updates on how the various believing communities were faring. We read this in chapter 1, verses 15 and uh, through 16. Some, to be sure, are preaching Messiah even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now those who are preaching Messiah, even from envy and strife, may well have been preaching a religious message, but their ultimate purpose was to gain a following for themselves. Those who were true witnesses of faith in Messiah are motivated by goodwill, that is, by true love for others, and in order to honor and glorify Yeshua. So Paul was in contact with some of these people. That Paul refers to those who are genuinely proclaiming the gospel as brethren emphasizes the unity of the body of Messiah in terms of being one family. For all who are true believers have the same father and are united with his son. Once again, 
in our very diverse world, a diversity which has come to identify the modern quote-unquote church, the gospel has been greatly diminished and in some circles lost altogether. But we know that some level of diversity existed in Paul's day as well, and this did not weaken the resolve of those who were truly born again, having received the true gospel of salvation Yeshua, to dedicate themselves to be strong witnesses of the gospel centered in Yeshua the Messiah and the work he had accomplished. So I could just say this, that with all the diversity, and of course those of us that are in what we call the Messianic movement, uh, that we have uh, really sought to uh, let the scriptures speak clearly, and at least some of us have, and to say that the Torah uh, is still something that is very, very important and essential for our lives as followers of Yeshua. Well, (laughs) we're at a time of the year right now in December where, um, I don't know, I don't know how many times in the last three or four weeks, well, two or three weeks, I've been in a store and somebody will just you know, as I leave, say have a have a happy holiday, and uh, I, of course they mean Christmas. Now I'm not saying that people who celebrate Christmas, I, I'm not going to make any judgment on them, but they didn't most than likely didn't celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, that was of course uh, a you know tradition, but it did celebrate the work of God uh, to restore the uh, the, the uh, temple and so forth and so on. But do they celebrate Passover? Do they celebrate Sukkot? Do they celebrate Yom Kippur? You know, I mean, it's uh, it's very easy for religion to take over. And I'm again, I'm not saying that everyone who is in the Christian church, and no, I'm not saying that at all, I'm not making the judgment, I'm not the judge, we're not the judges. God is the judge of the heart. But what we must do is continue to seek to know what God truly wants and what, how we're going to learn that is through the scriptures. So there was a diversity existed in Paul's day. Uh, but this did not weaken the resolve of those who were truly born again, having received the true gospel of salvation in Yeshua. Let, it, let the diversity not weaken us. Let us remain strong in the Lord empowered by his might that we might shine as lights in this world. I wish that everyone in what they would term as the Messianic movement would take that position that we have a great opportunity to prove who we are in the Messiah Yeshua and by that to be a strong witness to others. Well, this concluding statement of Paul ought to encourage us to hold unity within our local assemblies as having a very high value and something we ought to strive to maintain with full, spirit-led fervency. He goes on to say in the next verse, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now he says, All the saints greet you. Once again, Paul uses the word saint to refer to those who have confessed Yeshua to be the promised Messiah and have believed in him with saving faith thus being born again to a new life. He's not talking about those who have received some special commendation or some special office or something. He uses that term to refer to all who are true believers. In using the inclusive phrase, all the saints, Paul is surely referring to any and all with whom he was acquainted in Rome 
and who had in one way or another made communication with him, with him either directly or through a friend sending their greetings and concerns. And then there's this enigma phrase, especially those of Caesar's household. There are many questions that have been raised as to how this final phrase of our verse is to be understood. It seems clear, however, that there were those who were directly associated with Caesar, that is Caesar's household, by being employed by him or were in some way connected to the governmental structure of Caesar's reign. We know, for instance, that Paul mentioned several names which, as far as the history can be determined, may have been part of Caesar's governing leaders. In Paul's epistle to the Romans, for instance, he mentions two such names which represent a larger household. He says, Greet Apollos, the approved in Messiah. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Well, it, the household of Aristobulus is greeted, but not Aristobulus himself. On this account, most reason that he was either deceased, that is, Aristobulus was deceased, or not a believer. Some scholars think he might have been the grandson of Herod the Great and brother of Agrippa I, who died between 45 and 48. If this were the case, then the family would continue to bear his name, a family that no doubt had many Jewish members and perhaps believers in Yeshua as well. This theory may be strengthened by the mention of Herodian, most likely a member of the Herod family. Well, while there are divergent viewpoints as to how broadly Paul's mention of Caesar's household should be understood, it seems clear that the gospel had reached even into the wealthy and ruling segments of the population, and that some had come to accept Yeshua and were living out their faith, even in the utter pagan culture of ancient Rome. This once again emphasizes the power of the gospel as the Spirit applies it to those who would be saved. As Paul emphasizes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. We could translate that. That results in salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And once again, Paul is emphasizing even in that verse that there is equality between the Jew, the believing Jew and the believing Gentile. There must be, because from the very beginning, if we read in the book of Genesis, what God promised Abraham, what, he, what God promised uh, Moses and David, was that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. God intended that Jews and Gentiles would become one in the body of the Messiah. It is also likely that those who were of Caesar's household and who were openly living a life of faith in Yeshua may have been, in some ways, marginalized within the Roman culture. So Paul's greeting them specifically is yet another indication of his desire to encourage all believers to remain strong and true to their faith in Yeshua, and, I could add, as well as emphasizing once again the equality in terms of standing in God's grace of all who are believers. And we come now to the final verse of our epistle, the grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah be with your spirit. In all of Paul's letters, he signs off with this phrase or something very similar. The standard goodbye in Greek letters that have been found was eroso, the imperative of chronumi, which could be understood as goodbye, but literally means be strong. 
But though surely Paul knew this manner of salutation within the Greek culture of his day, he rather gives the means by which true strength is attained. And that means is the very grace of God, made evident in the sending of his son, Yeshua the Messiah, promised to Abraham, Moses, and David, and proclaimed by the prophets to be the promised one, who alone could accomplish salvation for all of his people. So it's interesting because Paul doesn't use the common uh, way of closing off the letter. He uses the grace of the Lord, Yeshua Messiah, be with your spirit. Sometimes I think we we wish things upon people without <laughs> trying to understand how that could possibly be the case. But God's grace is never limited. So what a wonderful way to end this uh, letter to the Philippians, uh, something they, I'm sure, would have said this is a new and very interesting way to sign off in a letter. In using the three-tiered name, Lord, Yeshua, Messiah, Kuriu, Yesu, Christu, he is emphasizing once again the utter deity and eternal lordship of Yeshua and thus likewise emphasizing the glorious mystery and wonder of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I don't mind saying it again. I know I've said it a number of times before. But great is the mystery of godliness. And what does that mean? Great is the mystery of who God is. Clearly we know God exists. Clearly we know that Yeshua is has come and revealed himself and revealed the Father and the Spirit. But if we are trying to find a mathematical uh, explanation for how three can be one, well, we can find all kinds of supposed illustrations, but none of them really work. We have to say, yes, it is true. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and yet there is only one God, and the three are one. And some mathematician says that doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work in in our must-work world, but it certainly works as far as God is concerned because he is above us, beyond us, and we will never, even in eternity, come to fully comprehend all that God is because he is infinite in all of his attributes. And like it or not, we are not infinite because we had a beginning. So he says, The Lord, Yeshua Messiah, be with your spirit. Obviously, Paul is not discounting the physical body created in God's image when he uses the word spirit. Rather, he is putting great emphasis upon the fact that by spirit, he means that very breath and life by which we live. And the Spirit of God leads us, convicts us, and strengthens us in our spirit. We read this in Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with the Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That verse is just packed full of the whole theology. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. How is that? He convicts us. He leads us as we seek his leadership. He strengthens us. He brings to our mind those things which are most important. So it's not only 
all of the wonderful things that he does, but one of the wonderful things that he does is he he rebukes us when we need to be rebuked. He causes us to groan when we have sinned against him. And that's because he loves us. He doesn't want us to continue on in the way that is contrary to God's holiness. But then, isn't if, you know, this prosperity gospel, if you are a believer in Jesus, everything's going to be wonderful, you're going to have a great, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have a lot of uh, this world's uh, things and everything will be wonderful. Well, then what do they do with if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him? In this world, we'll have tribulation, he said. But don't give up. He has overcome the world. The very fact that that it comes to us in this way tells us that we're his because the enemy wants to do us in. But God has promised he will never allow that to happen. Therefore, Paul encourages and exhorts the community at Philippi, as well as all who would read his letter, as it was divinely placed into Scripture, to be strong in our spirit through submitting to the Spirit of God who indwells us. So, the last thing I will say as we complete this great epistle, may the words of this great epistle remain active in all who belong to Yeshua and therefore desire to serve him and to glorify him forever. All right, I guess that's where we'll end uh, for tonight. And again, I want to uh, just remind you that I will put up on the TorahResource.com site. If you look under Resources and go to the Philippians study, uh, I'll put there whether we're going to have something next week. And if we do, I will be going through all four chapters, pulling out things that we maybe need to be reminded of, and asking the question, how does this fit into our life? What are we to do in relationship to these scriptures that maybe are the high points throughout all of the paragraphs. We'll see if that uh, might come to pass, and if so, I'll make sure that there's an announcement up there by Tuesday of next week at the latest. Okay, thank you so much, and look forward to being with you in the future.